This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, the State Department's Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement combats crime and drug trafficking around the globe. The head of the Bureau joins us. And the U.S. Copyright Office is hoping to make it easier for the public to resolve disputes with its new small claims court. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the show that delivers insights on federal government programs, people, and operations. I'm Mimi Gerges. The Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement was created in 1978. Since then, its mission has expanded. Ambassador Todd Robinson is the Assistant Secretary for that Bureau. Mr. Assistant Secretary, welcome to the program. Good to be here. So why was the Bureau created uh, back in 1978, and how has that mission changed since then? So the Bureau was created uh, as part of our war against uh, drugs. And uh, really, it was created to help the government of Colombia uh, fight the narcotics traffickers, uh, develop stronger democratic institutions, uh, and keep its people safe and keep the people in the United States safe. Um, you know, obviously, your uh, office has a very big focus on the opioid, opioid crisis, which has affected a lot of Americans. What unique role does your office play in combating that issue? Well, we do a couple of things. We work uh, domestically with our interagency partners on programs and uh, processes to uh, help uh, with access to uh, treatment. Um, but we also work internationally with countries around the world, China, uh, uh, Mexico, Colombia, to make sure that uh, we are doing everything we can to help them uh, fight distribution of uh, uh, narcotics uh, and opioids uh, to uh, build up their their security institutions, uh, prosecutors, judges, um, customs uh, forces, uh, all in an effort to uh, help them do better so that they can help us do better in keeping these drugs out of the United States. So I wanted to ask you about Mexico first, because fentanyl, which is a synthetic opioid, is um, making this problem just exponentially worse. And a lot of that is being made in Mexico. How's that relationship with your counterparts there in Mexico, and how effective has it been? We've been working with Mexico for a long time, and frankly, the relationship is very good. Uh, we have great relationship with their police. Uh, we have great relationships with their local governments, particularly the ones along the border, uh, in terms of helping us uh, keep, the, keep the drugs, as much of the drugs as we can, uh, from crossing the border. But frankly, um, we have two problems. Uh, this is a global issue, so the, the actual precursors for these chemicals aren't starting in Mexico. They're starting in China. Uh, and other parts of Asia and coming across uh, uh, to Mexico. Um, but then we have to, uh, again, work with uh, offices like the uh, Office of National Drug Control Policy uh, to, to look at um, tr access to treatment and what is it about these drugs that are so attractive to so many of our citizens. 
And and what are you doing on that on that case? I would imagine that's not part of your purview in in your bureau. It's not directly part of our purview, but we have to. You know, this is a team effort. This is a, a global effort, and we have to work together to make sure that um, that we're all working uh, towards the same objective using our programs to support the work uh, that ONDCP is doing. You know, just a, a few weeks ago, I traveled to Colombia with uh, the director of ONDCP, Dr. Raul Gupta, and, uh, and it was great for the Colombians to see us together, along with our partner from AID, uh, to talk about um, the issues that are affecting Colombia, but and also the issues that are affecting the United States. You touched on this before, which is the, the chemicals that, that are used to make fentanyl are coming out of uh, China, mostly. Um, I would imagine that they're a lot harder to work with in, in stemming that flow. How effective have you been in, in trying to get those chemicals um, out of, eventually, the United States? Well, you know, the, the relationship with China is always tricky for a lot of different reasons. Uh, you may recall in 2019, most of the fentanyl that was arriving in the United States was coming directly from China. But through negotiations and through diplomacy, we were able to get them to schedule the drug, to put it under uh, greater scrutiny. And now, almost zero fentanyl is coming directly from China into the United States. So if we can do that kind of negotiation, I think eventually we will get to working with them more closely on looking at the, the precursor chemicals that are leaving the country and also looking at things like money laundering, which um, you know Chinese uh, 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 traffickers are, are uh, finding ways to launder uh, the money uh, that they gain from from selling these uh, precursor chemicals. So what would you say is the biggest problem right now for um, in, in combating the international drug trade? Well, there's a couple of problems. One, uh, we have to figure out why people are taking these drugs and, and uh, get them better uh, uh, access to, to treatment, for sure. Um, the other thing is, uh, Fentanyl, or opioids in general, um, aren't like traditional uh, uh, drugs like heroin or cocaine that need growing seasons, for instance. They don't need growing seasons. Um, they, they can change the potency just by changing the chemical character uh, of the drugs very quickly. Plus, they're much easier to uh, transport. They can put them in smaller packages, uh, get them in cars or, or um, any other uh, way of, of getting them into the United States or getting them to Europe where they are apparently very popular. All right, Mr. Ambassador, a quick break here and then we'll come back. Up next, we'll continue our conversation with the State Department's Todd Robinson, leader of the Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement. We'll be right back. We're back with Ambassador Todd Robinson. He's the Assistant Secretary for the Bureau of International Narcotics and Law Enforcement. I want to ask you about Ukraine. You traveled there a few months ago. How is your bureau supporting that country? We are supporting them uh, uh, really well. Uh, we are working with uh, their border, uh, border guards, their uh, national police. Uh, we work with their uh, prosecutor general's office. 
uh, we are getting them armored vehicles, we are getting them vests, helmets, whatever they need, whatever they think they need uh, to help fight this uh, atrocious war that's being perpetrated on them by Russia. If we can get it for them, we are, and, and uh, delivering it to them uh, on, a, on a regular basis. We're also working with them to make sure that they are able to uh, document, document any war crimes. Uh, so we're working with the prosecutor general. Um, we're working with our European partners, making sure that um, they have the capability, they have the technical tools, uh, and they have the legal framework uh, internationally to make sure that when this is all over and uh, accountability has to be made, that the Russians are made to... to to be held accountable for what they've done. The State Department support goes back to 2014, to the, the Maidan uh, revolution. Um, how did, uh, how, do, how was the State Department involved in transforming Ukraine's uh, police force since then? Well, we've, we've worked very closely on um, uh, making sure that the national police have a capacity to do uh, investigations, um, but also um, uh, developing local police uh, and making sure that uh, the, the towns uh, around, uh, across Ukraine, have the ability to uh, protect their people. Um, we've, but you, you will, you noticed, you noted that uh, we started in 2014. Most of what we were doing in 2014 was really focused on the fight against corruption. Uh, and that is really where we've, uh, we've, we've had great success working with their uh, judges and their prosecutors. And we hope, uh, after this war is over, to go back and continue uh, working on, the, on that very important issue. And it's not just Ukraine. You, you train law enforcement in, uh, you know, around the globe, essentially, through several academies. Tell us how those academies work. Um, the, we invite... Uh, 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 police law enforcement, I should say, actors around the world to train at our academies to uh, gain capacity in investigations, uh, anti-money laundering, uh, uh, cybercrime. Uh, we have these academies, we've developed these academies uh, in places like uh, Budapest, uh, Thailand, El Salvador, uh, we have one in uh, Malawi. We have a regional training center in Ghana. All of that to, um, to, to give uh, regional actors who want to do the right thing, who uh, have, have um, uh, forces uh, that they want to make better, uh, gain experience from our, um, from our partners uh, in the United States, the, the interagency partners in the United States like DEA, like the Department of Justice, like the Department of Treasury. But, you know, I wonder why, uh, how does this benefit the United States to have, you know, for, for the State Department to go and, and train local police force in, in disparate parts of the world? Well, uh, what we know is uh, democracy works better when people are safe, uh, when people can count on their uh, law enforcement uh, to protect their human rights, uh, when people can count on their law enforcement to keep them uh, to keep them safe, and uh, and so we think it's in our best interest to have uh, partners around the world who want to do law enforcement um, similar to how other uh, advanced democracies do law enforcement. Uh, and if we have those partners doing those things, protecting human rights, 
making people feel safer, allowing uh, economies to grow. You know, economies don't grow in uh, countries where there's not protection uh, and where there's not safety and where people can't trust their law enforcement. If we can help uh, make those law enforcement agencies around the world better, we're making those countries safer and, and by extension, we're making the United States safer. It's also an objective to increase women's participation in law enforcement and justice. Why? Why the focus on women? Well, we know that when women are involved, uh, usually everything's things better. Like, things like <laughs> well, everything's better. Things like law enforcement are better. Um, access to justice is better. Uh, access to education, healthcare, all of those things uh, get better when women are involved. Um, we think uh, it's really important that we support women who want to be part of uh, law enforcement and security structures around the world. Uh, that's why we, um, uh, we, we work with and train judges in places like Pakistan um, and Vietnam. Um, uh, we, we, we think this is important. They want to do it. And if they have the capacity to do it, uh, and they've they've put themselves out there. We want to be supportive. You know, I think most people would be surprised that State Department is so involved in law enforcement and you know ending the drug trade and uh, wildlife trafficking, even because most people think you know this is all about diplomacy and talking to people and convincing people. Well, you're right, uh, and in many cases, uh, in in fact, I was just in Asia. Uh, in Vietnam and, and, and Laos, in many cases, we are trying to convince uh, these countries that there is a different way, there is a better way uh, of doing law enforcement by having law enforcement participate in, uh, in their communities. Community policing, which we do in the United States all the time, uh, is not uh, done everywhere around the world, but we know it's effective. And if we can convince these countries to do it, um, again, safer countries, better democracies, safer for the United States. We don't have a whole lot of time, but I wanted to ask you one thing, which was before your role, you were ambassador to Venezuela mm. and you got kicked out. Yes. What did you do? Well, uh, there was an election going on. Uh, we were pretty sure that the election was not going to be free and fair. And in fact, it was not free and fair. Um, uh, my instructions were to make sure that the government knew that we knew the, the elections were not going to be free and fair, and to try to push them to make them freer and fairer. Uh, I don't think uh, President Maduro was very happy with my comments, both uh, publicly and privately, quite frankly, and, uh, and he decided that uh, he didn't want to hear from me anymore, so he invited me to leave. Well, we want to hear from you, and I want to thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you. Coming next, just a few months ago, the U.S. Copyright Office launched its own small claims court. We'll take a look at how it works. We'll be right back. The U.S. Copyright Office is one of the oldest government departments. It was formed more than 150 years ago as part of the Library of Congress, where it still is today. Susie Wilson is General Counsel and Associate Register of Copyrights. Susie, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. So before we talk about the, the new Copyright Claims Board, I just want to ask you, what does the U.S. Copyright Office do? The, so the United States Copyright Office actually oversees the nation's copyright system. And um, kind of under that very you know, short sentence is a lot of details. 
We administer the copyright registration system for the nation, um, as well as a number of other filings related to copyright. But we also provide advice to Congress, advice to the courts, and the other agencies um, in the government regarding the interpretation of the Copyright Act. In addition, we write regulations that help implement the acts that are passed by Congress to ensure that uh, the copyright system runs as it is intended. And what are all the works that, that can be copyrighted that you handle? So it's a very large group of works because essentially what a copyright is, is any original work of authorship that is fixed in a tangible media that meets a, a um, level of creativity that almost everything you do during the day would probably satisfy. For example, a photograph, a book, a sculpture, a painting, a play, a movie, um, a building plan, a copyright program. So it's a wide variety of works. All right, so let's talk about the Copyright Claims Board. It was launched in July. Why, why did you launch it? What was the need that you're trying to address? So one of the things that the Copyright Office is focused on, and in fact is part of our current strategic plan, is copyright for all. And what that means is trying to make the copyright system that the United States have has available and accessible to everyone in the United States. And um, in the end of 2020, Congress passed the Copyright Alternatives and Small Claims Act, which is a bit of a mouthful, so we just call it the CASE Act. And the CASE Act asked the Copyright Office to put together the Copyright Claims Board, which is a first of its kind small claims IP tribunal in the United States. And the idea is that it is um, less expensive, more time efficient, and accessible to everybody. It can be accessed virtually. And when you say less expensive, how much does it cost? Let's say I feel like, you know, somebody feels like they have an infringement against their copyright. What's the process? So what the process is, and again, as I said, it's all virtual, you can do this all from home. You never have to leave your home to uh, protect your copyright. And what it is is it's a $40 fee to file a claim with the Copyright Claims Board. The attorneys at the Claims Board go through and, and um, check to make sure it's a compliant claim because there are only certain claims that the Claims Board can hear. It's damages for $30,000 or less. And um, particular types of claims, for example, an infringement claim or looking for a declaration of non-infringement. Um, and then one other claim related to uh, types of online notices. But what happens is you pay $40 to file your claim. It is a totally voluntary program so that what happens is after your claim is deemed compliant and you serve it on the respondent, the person you claim is, for example, in this example, infringing, if they agree to move forward with the claim, you pay another $60 and then that's it. Which brings it to $100. Yes. A whole lot less than going to federal court. A whole lot less. So who hears the claims? Like, how is that set up? So under the um, CASE Act, there are three copyright claims officers and they are three lawyers who are very experienced in copyright, um, including one lawyer who has a background in alternative dispute resolution or mediations, ways to find you know, parties to come together to resolve their claims. And the three of them will hear the claim. 
and then they work together to um, come up with a decision. So I know that this is still early, it's just been in July, but how many claims have been filed so far? So, so far we have over 150 claims filed, which is wonderful. Now, because of the process of going through and ensuring that a claim is compliant and then having it served, we don't yet know how many of those will end up being active cases. And, and give me an idea of the timeline. I know that, you know, it's still early, but about how long from the from the point somebody files to the point that they have a resolution? The, it, that is going to vary a lot depending on the claim and depending on, um, let's assume someone files a claim and is completely compliant from, from day one. So it comes in, it takes a number of weeks for the attorneys in the Copyright Claims Board to go through and process the claim and review it and then they find it compliant they will let the um, claimant know that they can go ahead and serve the respondent. The res and they will have um, a couple of months to actually get that done. And then the respondent, once they are served, has approximately 60 days to decide whether they're going to stay in the proceeding or opt out. Because again, as I said, it is voluntary. Someone can still go to federal court if they prefer to have their dispute heard there. All right, Susie Wilson, thanks so much for being with us on the show. Oh, thank you so much. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And don't forget, you can find every episode of our program on YouTube. Be sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss any of the videos we post. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers 
as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.